Why don't you take your Bibles and open with me to 2 Kings chapter 5. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 5. It's a powerful Old Testament narrative that I came across again while having devotions with my children a number of years ago. Uh, it was our habit to read the Word of God uh, uh, every evening. And uh, after I read this text and explained it to my kids, I just remember uh, uh, many years ago that they looked up and there were tears coming down their faces as they were thinking about uh, this text. And uh, even though I'm sure they didn't understand everything that was contained here, um, I know that there was something that grabbed their attention as well as, as my own. Our focus for today is going to be verses 20 to 27, uh, but I'll start at verse 1 just to set the context for you. 2 Kings chapter 5. Uh, why don't you follow with me as I read? 2 Kings chapter 5, starting at verse 1. It says, Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who was from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive? That this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious, and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me, and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper." Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. When he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Naaman said, If not, please let your servant at least be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offering, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, 
Go in peace. So he departed from him some distance. Why don't you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. And Father, it is our joy to come before your word. Father, this is the word that you have authored. Father, this is a word that is authoritative. It's sufficient. Everything that we need for life and godliness is found in your truth. And so, Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things as we study and contemplate what's written here. And, uh, Father, I pray that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's two parts to this story, and uh, this first section from verses 1 down to verse 19, we'll just call that Act 1. And here we meet the first servant in our tale of two servants. Uh, the first servant, uh, servant, his name is Naaman. Uh, the servant of the king of Aram, as he's called in verse 6. And uh, this story brings us to a time about 850 BC, a time when the land of Israel was divided. Uh, Judah was to the south, Israel was to the north. Outside of Israel to the east was a nation known as Assyria, uh, which was really beginning to pick up steam and uh, was really the, uh, the most uh, uh, powerful and expansive kingdom at this time. Uh, they had a the rule over the entire west, Western world. Uh, to the north of Israel, uh, was another country by the name of Aram, also known as Syria. And, and at this time, they were the most powerful state in the West, but they too felt the threat of Assyria. As Assyria, like I said, is building up steam and really wanting to strengthen themselves against attack by Assyria. Uh, so they had different ways that they would try to defend themselves. Uh, one of the ways they defended themselves was by forming alliances with neighboring states. Uh, uh, if those uh, nations, those neighboring nations, would not form an alliance with them, uh, they would seek to take control over a neighboring nation. And in the cases where they couldn't take control, they would cross across the uh, enemy lines and make these short excursions and bring back people as captives, kidnapping people to kind of bolster their own numbers. And this is where the story takes an interesting twist because God is doing his own invasion. Syria is doing their invasion, but God is busy doing an invasion of hearts. And uh, really what we find here on closer examination is that this story about Naaman, uh, this leper who finds healing is about much more than a, 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 a sick person who finds a cure. It's really about a sinner who finds God. And one of the keys to understanding a historical narrative is really to follow the, the plot conflict and resolution of the story and how this all ends. And as you pay attention to the story and how it's resolved, a problem arises to the surface that is much more serious than the disease that affected Naaman's skin. And it was the disease that infected Naaman's soul. He had more than a skin problem, he had a sin problem. And that the healing of Naaman only served the, the greater purpose of bringing him to confess Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, as the only God in all the earth. That was the, the greater purpose, to bring Naaman to this point of confessing that Yahweh was the God of, over all the earth. And leprosy was just God's mean to bring him to that confession. So healing was not the main point, the confession was. And as you pay attention to the flow of the narrative, that's exactly the point that we're, we're driven to. In, uh, in verse 3, uh, we hear the voice of this uh, little girl who was captured from Israel who wishes that her master will, were with the prophet in Samaria because she knew that there he could find a cure. There's a cure in Israel. So she's primarily concerned about the healing. In verse 8, we find, Elisha cries out, now let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So it goes from the cure to the prophet. And then Naaman's humble confession 
in verse 15 brings him all the way to the end of the story where he's now confessing that I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. It went from the cure to the prophet to the God of all the earth. So like I said, healing was not the main point. The main point was Naaman's confession. So this is what God is up to in this text. God is bringing men to the knowledge of himself, overcoming any barrier that stands in the way. And uh, this is God's priority that's revealed in this text. He wants men to confess that he is the only God in all the earth. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to skim across the first 19 verses, but I want you to catch a glimpse of what God is doing here so you can glory in the God of your salvation. Number one, God is removing Naaman's ignorance of his only hope. In uh, verses one to three, uh, we find that the servant of the captain of Aram, the king of Aram, even though he has known for being captain of the army of the, the king, a great man with his master, highly respected, the Lord had given victory to Aram through him. He was a valiant warrior. But at the end of verse one, it says, but he was a leper, a leper. Leprosy was uh, one of the most dreaded diseases in the ancient Near East. It was feared by ancient Israel, not only because of the physical effects, uh, but also for the social isolation as well. Uh, one encyclopedia describes the disease of leprosy in this way. It says, portions of the eyebrows may disappear. Spongy tumor-like swellings grow on the face and body. The disease becomes systemic and involves the internal organs as well as the skin. Marked deformity of the hands and feet occur when the tissues between the bones deteriorate and disappear. Often the sensory nerve endings no longer to re respond to heat or injury, and the unwary patient may be subject to further destruction of his limbs before he realizes he's in danger. The, the, the person would have no idea that they were rubbing off their extremities, fingers falling off, toes falling off, you know, harming themselves and having no idea that they're doing it the entire time. And at this point, it wasn't yet this severe for Naaman, but it was serious because there's no exit once you're on this road. The one who had leprosy was considered as good as dead. If you glance, glance down to verse seven, that's exactly the, the point that we're, we're given here as uh Naaman is sent to the king of Israel for the cure for leprosy. You know, they're thinking that if there's a cure for leprosy in Israel, you know, obviously the king knows about it. You know, so they send Naaman to the king to say, hey, I've, I've sent my servant here uh, so you could cure him of his leprosy. I know you have the, the magic potion, right? In verse seven, it says, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and says, am I God to kill him and make alive? Basically, he's saying this man is as good as dead. Am I God to kill and make alive? I can't bring anybody back from the dead and I surely can't cure anybody of leprosy. Am I God to kill and make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. Basically, the only uh, kind of uh, a solution that this king can think up is that, you know, he's just trying to come up with a way to attack me. And he's making up the story that I have the cure for leprosy and I'm not going to give it to the captain. I mean, that's the only thing that I can think of. He's seeking war. That's why he's here. It wasn't yet this serious for, for Naaman. Like I said, he wasn't yet at the end stages. He had the leprosy. He wasn't yet at the final stages of leprosy. But Naaman was as good as dead. As good as dead. And this, this sentence is like a guillotine hanging over his neck and the clock is ticking, and there's no way out. But God overcame his ignorance through this Hebrew slave who was captured from Israel, who says that 
I wish that my master were with the prophet in Samaria because there's a cure through the prophet. And this is Naaman's first exposure to the knowledge that maybe there is hope, maybe there is a cure. So God removes his ignorance. In verses four to eight, God is removing his reliance on his possessions. Uh, As you think through the story again, uh, the king of Aram uh, sent Naaman with these great gifts, gifts fit for a king. He writes this note, you know, to the king of of Israel and saying, hey, you know, I've I've sent my servant that you may cure him of his leprosy. And look at the the gifts that he brings. He he brings these these gifts in uh, verse five. He says, go now, I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him 10 talents of silver and 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothes. Uh, According to one source, gold is worth just over $1,800 an ounce. And if you were to do the math on, you know, the shekels of gold here, the gold alone would be worth $4.5 million. This is a sizable gift. And the, the silver would have been worth almost a half a million dollars. And who knows what 10 changes of clothes look like? I'm sure they, they weren't, you know, from the bargain rack. You know what I mean? This, this is something that's expensive. So Naaman here is about to bring this gift, this sizable gift, millions of dollars worth to the king of Israel and he finds out that there's no gift that he can offer for this miracle. There's there's no amount of money that he can give for this gift. All the wealth that Naaman could bring was worthless and God strips him of his reliance on his wealth. But not only that, God also removes Naaman's reliance in his position. Look at verse 9. It says, So Naaman came with his horses and his chariot stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you. You will be clean. But Naaman was furious. Furious. Why are you furious, Naaman? I mean, this is, this is what you're hoping for, right? You know, there's a cure. You know, all the prophet said is uh, go wash in the Jordan seven times and you'll be clean. I mean, this is, this is it, right? You know, this is the hope that you've been looking for. But Naaman is furious. Why? Because of who he is. He's relying on his position. Look at verse 11 again. Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me. (laughs) You you don't send a servant out to talk to me. You come out yourself. Because of who I am. Does he know who I am? Right? Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. I mean, certainly he's going to perform some theatrics, you know, come out personally to, to meet this great captain and, you know, wave his hand over the place and, and cure me. I mean, I'm, I'm the captain of the army of the king of Aram. I'm, I'm a great man with my master. I'm highly respected. I'm a valiant and victorious warrior. You know, I, I want the cure, but, but just leave my dignity intact. You know, I want the cure, but I, I still want to make sure I come out as the, the hero. I want the cure as long as it doesn't make me look dependent and weak and insufficient and desperate and needy and bankrupt. You know, take, take my leprosy, but leave my pride alone. Leave my pride alone. So here he is on the very edge of deliverance, about to be cured from leprosy. And now he has the nerve to be picky. He wants to choose how he's going to be healed. But to the proud of heart, this makes perfect sense, right? 
you know, because we, we want to make sure that we're protecting ourselves. But God had to remove his pride too. He couldn't rely on his position. And next, God removes his allegiance to his gods and says, verse 15, when he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, says, behold, now I know that there's no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. And Elisha responds, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And Naaman said, if not, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth for your servant will no longer offer burnt offering, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. He confesses openly before Elisha, before servants, that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. He now has an allegiance to the true God and declares the gods of, of Aram to be non-existent. The gods back home can't do this. The gods back home can't cure a man of his leprosy. This is the only God. This is a total transformation. He expresses his devotion to Yahweh alone, and he vows never to sacrifice to another God, but the God of Israel. And at this point, he doesn't even wish to go back into the house of the false gods. If you look down in verse 18, it speaks about Rimen, one of the false gods of Syria. It says in verse 18, In this matter may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimen to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimen, when I bow myself in the house of Rimen, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. So he said to him, Go in peace. So he departed from him some distance. What, what a marvelous work of God, right? The God would remove his ignorance. The God would remove his reliance on his possessions, remove his reliance on his position, remove his allegiance to any other God. This is a total transformation. God is bringing men to the knowledge of himself and removing any barriers that stand in the way. He wants to make it clear that his allegiance is only to the true God. And after that, Find in verse 19, he said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him some distance. So here you have in the Old Testament, even before we get to the book of Acts and Pentecost and you know the, the gospel going out to all the nations, right here in the Old Testament, you have God reaching down, saving lost souls, even Gentiles, and bringing them to himself. That was God's plan. That's God's plan A. That's not plan B. This has been God's desire throughout the ages. And the story of Naaman really serves as an excellent illustration of a sinner who comes to God. Because just as leprosy has no cure, neither does the sickness of sin. In uh, Jeremiah 17, 9, it says that the, the heart is desperately sick or incurably sick. Who can know it? Who can understand it? There's nothing that you can do to cure your heart. You know, the, the leopard can't change his spots. The Ethiopian can't change his skin. There's nothing that you can do. It's incurable. God has to be the one to bring the cure. And in order for Naaman to receive the cure, he had to humble himself. He couldn't rely on himself. That's the very same thing that we have to do when we come to salvation. We can't rely on our good works. We can't rely on our position. We can't rely upon our wealth. We're saved by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works so that nobody can boast. We stand before God without anything in our hands to bring, right? You know, we sing it in that song, you know, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. There's absolutely nothing that you can offer to God 
to commend yourself that God would receive you. There's nothing that you can do to remove the stain of sin. God has to do that work. And this is a great illustration of God reaching down to save a lost soul. And thank God that he saved wretches like us, right? (laughs) That he saved a wretch like me. And God is doing the same kind of thing in salvation today. And if you're here today and you have not trusted in in Jesus Christ, I want to let you know that there's a cure available, right? There's a cure available for sin. There's a cure available for eternal judgment. And it's only found when you will humble yourself before Jesus Christ. When you will deny yourself, pick up the cross and follow after Jesus Christ. I'm turning away from everything else. I'm abandoning hope in anything else. And I'm trusting in Jesus Christ alone. The one who lived the perfect life in your place. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ took on our penalty so that he could give us his righteousness in exchange. And when he died on the cross, he suffered, bled, and died to take on the full wrath of God so that we might be saved eternally. That's that's the offer that's being made. That is the only cure, the only hope. It's through Jesus Christ. There is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved except Jesus Christ, Acts 4 and 12. So God is doing this work. He's bringing people to himself. And I would pray that if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, that he would bring you to himself. But this is what God is doing. God's removing all the barriers and bringing people to himself. What an exciting truth. And everybody should have been excited about this, right? As they they see Naaman, you know, kind of riding off into the sunset, it's like, you know, praise God. Look Look at this. Look at this sinner who's just come to faith in the Lord, who's just agreed that there's only one God in all the earth. Everybody should have been excited about this, except for one guy, except for one guy. Look at verse 20. It says, But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, Behold, my master has spared this name in the Aramean by not receiving from his hands what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. And here we're introduced to servant number two. (laughs) Servant number two in the tale of, of two servants. Gehazi, He's a servant of Elisha. He's already been introduced in 2 Kings chapter 4 in a well-known story about a wealthy Shunammite woman. And in that chapter, she builds a guest room for Elisha to stay in her home and the, whenever he passed by for, for him and for his servants. And when Elisha could think of no appropriate way to thank this woman for her kindness, he turns to Gehazi, you know, his right-hand man. He turns to him for counsel. You know, what, what should we do for this, this woman? And Gehazi recognized that she didn't have any children, and he says we should entreat the Lord that she would have children. Later on, when this son died, Gehazi witnessed the, the resurrection, the power of God firsthand. He had the privilege to be there to see the son brought back to life. This is a, a man who was insightful. He was a man who was invested in. He was a man who had seen the works of God firsthand. I mean, so much had been invested in Gehazi. He witnessed the power of God. He was full of potential. He was Elisha's right-hand man. When you think about it, Elisha received the double portion of the spirit that belonged to Elijah. Remember that? Over in 2 Kings chapter 2. And guess who's next in line? Gehazi's next in line. 
you know, like the, the way it should have read is Elijah, Elisha, Gehazi. I mean, it's the, the next guy in line. I mean, the baton has been extended to Gehazi. And instead of seeing him snatch the baton and run off and take his lap, you see the baton hit the dust and defeat. That's the story of Gehazi. And it's a story about more than just the sin of greed, which it is, and covetousness. This is a story about a man who, who lost sight of God and exchanged his own priorities for God's. While God is busy bringing the nations to himself, Gehazi was busy plotting how he could get the wealth of the nations to himself. And again, as you follow the narrative, you discover that Gehazi reordered his priorities. Everything's in the wrong place. Elisha's words in verse 26 pierced his soul and are just as cutting when Elisha says, is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes, olive groves, vineyards, sheep, oxen, male, female servants? In other words, is, is it the time to, to set up your kingdom now, Gehazi? You, you think that's what the time is for? And what I want to do for the remainder of our time is give you just three results of failing to make God's priorities your priorities. Three results of failing to make God's priorities your priorities. Number one, we delude ourselves. Look at verse 20 again. It says, But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, Behold, my master has spared this name in the Aramean by not receiving from his hands what he brought. He devalues God's priorities of saving the nations, and he refers to Naaman as Naaman this Aramean, as, as if to say, what does an Aramean have to do with our God? I, it's it's like, a, like Jonah saying, like, these Ninevites don't belong with our God. Why should they be forgiven? Why should God have mercy on them? And that's the same thing that Gehazi's doing. This, this Aramean, this name in the Aramean, are you serious? What claim does he have on our God? And he reasons within himself that, that Elisha was wrong for letting him go. How dare he let this guy get away? Over in uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, uh, we learned that this story took place during a time of famine in Israel. Uh, in the latter portion of uh, the chapter, we find two instances where God provided miraculously for Elisha and the sons of the prophets, those who studied underneath Elisha. God provided miraculously for them because they couldn't provide for themselves. Over in uh, 2 Kings uh, chapter 4, in verse uh, 39, you can just flip back there real quick. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 39. Actually, I'll start at verse 38. It says, When Elisha returned to Gilgal, there was a famine in the land. As the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. Then one went out into the large, into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered it from his lap full of wild gourds and came and sliced them into the pot of stew for they did not know what they were. And, and just, just a, a side note, uh, don't cut up anything and put it into the pot unless you know what you're putting in there. But, but here, here it goes. Found a wild vine, gathered it from its lap, full of wild gourds, came, sliced it, put into the pot of stew, for they did not know what they were. So they poured it out for the men to eat. And as they were eating of the stew, they cried out and said, Oh, man of God, there is death in the pot and they were unable to eat. You know, the, the, the pot of stew had been poisoned uh, with these things that they didn't know what they were, but they put them in anyway, right? 
They wanted to season the pot with the, you know, the, the mystery, mystery, uh, maybe like the mystery dinner, but maybe not like that. <laughs> Hopefully the people that are inviting you over know what they're, they're giving you. Okay, but let me ask you a question. If you stirred up a pot and you figured out that there's poison in the pot, there is death in the pot, what do you do? You pour it out and make a new one, right? But that's not what happens here. Verse 41, it says, but he said, now bring the meal. He threw it in the pot and said, pour it out for the people that they may eat. Then there was no harm in the pot. Later on, you find another story, verse 42. Now a man came from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in a sack. He says, give them to the people that they may eat. His attendant said, what will I set this? What will I set this before a hundred men? It's not enough to go around. But he said, give them to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. We read about the, the multiplication of the fish and the loaves in the New Testament. Jesus Christ multiplied the food. Same exact miracle happened in the Old Testament under Elisha. This was a difficult time for ministry. They had to, to cure the pot because they don't have a second. They don't have a backup. They had to multiply these, this, this food, you know, these loaves in order to feed a hundred men. Why? Because they don't have enough food to go around. This was a difficult time. Ministry was hard. And Gehazi laid his eyes on these gifts that Naaman brought. Gold, silver, changes of clothes. $4.5 million in gold. And he's saying, how could Elisha allow this guy to get away? Doesn't he know what we're going through? Does he know how tough things are? Why didn't my master see this opportunity? He deluded himself. And he elevated his own priorities above God's priorities. At the end of verse 20, it says, as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. This is in direct contrast to what Elisha said. Elisha had told Naaman that as the Lord lives, I'll take nothing from you. You're not getting this in exchange for money. I'm not giving you a healing because you're putting something in the plate. I'm not taking anything from you. As the Lord lives, I'm taking nothing for this miracle. Gehazi says the exact opposite. As the Lord lives, I'm taking something. <laughs> I'm taking something. As the Lord lives. I mean, how, how did God get into this picture? It's not about God. This is all about him. But now he's making a vow before the Lord. As the Lord lives, I'm, I'm getting something out of this guy. He's not getting away. And he just says something. I mean, just anything. Like, just I need to get my hands on it. Just anything will be a relief. So the first result of not making God's priorities our priorities is that we delude ourselves, elevate our own priorities, criticize godly leaders, trick ourselves into believing that the God is on my side, God's on my side, and we're certain that our sins aren't really that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal to God. Second result of not making God's priorities our priorities is that we deceive others. Not only do we delude ourselves, we also deceive others. Look at verse 21. 
So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw one running after him, he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, is all well? And he said, all is well. Everything's okay. My master has just sent me saying, behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. You liar. <laughs> he comes on with this believable story. You know, you know, my master wouldn't take it for himself, but, you know, we've got these sons of the prophets. They're studying with us, you know, the young seminary students. You know, who, who, can, who can blame me for coming back for a donation for hungry seminary students, right? You know, they, they've just come, you know, we, unexpected. You know, we've got to have something for these guys. And it's, it's a reasonable request. I mean, just, just, just a talent of silver, and two changes of clothes. I mean, just, just enough for them to get changed. They've been on a long journey, you know, just two changes of clothes, talent of silver. And here Naaman agrees without hesitation. Doesn't give it a second thought. And he urges that two talents would be given to him. Look at verse 23. Naaman said, be pleased to take two talents. And he urged him, you know, no, no, no. Okay, okay, I'll take, I'll take the two. I'll take the two. Bound two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of clothes. Kind of gift wraps it for him. Gave them to two of the servants. Had it delivered. Amazon Prime coming through. And they carried them before him. When he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and deposited them in his house. And he sent the men away and they departed. Naaman's the innocent victim. Innocent victim. And Gehazi was only too eager to take advantage of this opportunity. Here he is. He's looking at a brand new believer. It's a baby believer. And he's willing to take advantage of the baby believer. As long as I can get my hands on something, I'll take advantage of the baby believer. That's okay. And how many phony prophets today are doing the same thing, right? If I can just get my hands on something, you know, I'll promise you healing and everything else so I can fill my pockets. What kind of a heartless crook would do this? Brand new believer. Tricks him. And all he needs to do is make sure that he stays undercover. That's these two servants that bring it all the way to the hill. It says in verse 24, it says, and he took them from their hand and deposited them in his house. Hey, hey guys, you can't you can't go any farther than the hill. Like this is this is it. No, but how about the, the sons of the prophets? Can't we can't we meet them? No, no guys, you can't can't see the prophets. Hey, can we see Elisha again? No, no guys, you better catch up with the the, the caravan. It might be you know heading back to Aaron by now. He's got he's got to keep this all secret. Picks it from their hands so they don't come any further. Deposits them in his house. Sends the men away. Then he comes back before. Elisha, you know, mission accomplished, you know, I, I and reporting for duty. Every, everything's, everything's done. And how he imagined he was going to keep these two talents of silver and a, you know, two designer outfits as a secret is beyond me. But somehow this is what sin does, right? Uh, I remember one preacher, he said, sin is what you do when you're stupid. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden you think that somehow I'm, I'm going to get away with this. 
Like, there, there's no way. I mean, I'm too slick for Elisha to, to catch me in this one. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13 talks about the deceitfulness of sin. You, you can't reason with sin. It doesn't make sense. Sin doesn't make sense. But when we're given over to our greed, covetousness, we're, 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 we're trying to get away with everything. I, I think I can do it. God's priorities are switched for his priorities. He deluded himself. He deceived others. And he deserves his discipline. That's the third point. The third result of not making God's priorities our priorities is that we deserve our discipline. Look again at verse 25. It says, But he went in, stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? He says, Oh, your, your servant went nowhere. You, you didn't see me out back mowing the grass, you know, moving some of the rocks around. You know, it's those rocks, you know, they just come up out of nowhere. Got to take care of that. And he should have expected that something was going to happen, right? You should have expected this question to come up. Stood before his master. Where, where have you been? Nowhere, nowhere. He should have expected this. Should have been like a sinking feeling in his stomach when Elisha is questioning him. It's like you want to say, uh, you idiot. <laughs> who, who knows what kind of mercy might have been extended if he only confessed, right? Those who confess, take their sins, will find mercy. Here's his opportunity. Gehazi, where you been? This is your opportunity to fess up. Elisha, I blew it. I am so sorry. I think we can catch back up to the servants. I, I took something. I, I know I shouldn't have done it. Please forgive me. This is his opportunity to confess his sins. But instead of confessing his sins, he tries to hide it. Tries to conceal his sins. You know, when God shows up in the garden, you know, Adam, where are you? And all of a sudden you want to pass the buck here and there, right? Like Judas, when you're sitting around the table with the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says, uh, one of you is going to betray me. And everybody around the table saying, is it, is it I? Is it I? When it got around to Judas, he should have said, it is me. <laughs> it's me. You know, don't, don't, no, no need to ask the questions here. It is I. It's your opportunity to confess. But instead of confession, he tries to cover it over. It's like, you know, Elisha, it's almost like, like Elisha wants to say, you know, did, did you forget who I work for? <laughs> I'm, I'm working for the Lord here. Look at verse 26. It says, then he said to him, did not my heart go with you? When the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money, to receive clothes, olive groves, vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female, servants? You know, this is the part that sin doesn't, warn you about. Be sure your sins will find you out. You can't hide it. You can't keep it concealed. Be sure your sins will find you out. And Elisha was given the ability to see plainly before him what was already fully known by God. You know, in full view. You know, play back the DVD. You know, Elisha saw everything. Didn't I see you? Wasn't my heart with you? When he walked down from his chariot, a brand new believer, I saw it all, Gehazi. I saw it all. 
to step down from his chariot to greet you. And what a blow this must have been to Elisha. This is his ministry partner. Somebody that he would have trusted in. Somebody that he thought was going to take the baton from him. Now he's found out to be a crook. And Gehazi receives his punishment. Look at verse 26, 27. It says, therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper as white as snow. Like I said, Gehazi had so much that was invested in him. And he attempted to put the rewards before the service, right? He wanted the, the crown before the cross. You know, I don't want to sacrifice, you know, for the kingdom. I don't want to wait for the kingdom. Sometimes people debate over whether Old Testament believers anticipated heaven or not. I really see that indication given right here when uh, Elisha says to him, you know, is it, is it a time to receive money, to receive clothes, olive groves, vineyards, and all that? Like, is it a time to receive the reward now? He understands that there's a time coming in the future. He, he had a master, Elisha had a master, Elijah, and where was he taken? He was taken up in a chariot to heaven. Elisha knows that this isn't all that there is. There's more to come after this. Like, it's not the time now. You think the time is now? It's not the time now. Genesis 5.24, another Old Testament example. Enoch walked with the Lord and he was not. He was taken by the Lord. Like, like Gehazi, it's just not the time yet. The rewards are going to come. The kingdom's coming. It's just not now. And instead of receiving the reward, you're going to receive the sentence. The leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. Far-reaching effects of sin. Sin is not contained. You don't sin in a box. You don't sin isolated from everybody else. There's others who are dragged into the, the pain and misery of your choices. Elisha was dragged into the sin because Elisha said, as long as the Lord lives, as the Lord lives, I'm taking nothing. Now, Elisha looks like he's a liar, right? Because Gehazi brought him into it. Naaman was sinned against. He lied directly to his face. The servants of Naaman were sinned against. You know, they think they're bringing a gift for the sons of the prophets, but they're lied to. Gehazi's affected by it because the leprosy clung to him. Not only was Gehazi affected, his family was affected by it. Everybody got thrown in. His, 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 his leprosy was transmitted from father to son to son until the entire line was wiped out. Nobody's surviving this. And do you know that there's no turning back for Gehazi? There's no dipping in the Jordan seven times to be cleansed. Like, this is it. You're done. There, there's no hope for this. And this great story of a man who was brought to saving faith through leprosy is turned into this great tragedy. As Gehazi goes out from the presence of Elisha, a leper, and look at verse 27, as white as snow. <laughs> a leper, white as snow. Do you know what that is? That's the end stages of leprosy. Naaman had the beginning stages. Gehazi had the latter stages. This is it. And how many tears would he shed over this? How many nights would he groan if only I had a second chance? If only I could reverse the hands of time and do it over again. So full of potential, greatest training, greatest opportunities, in line to be the next 
Elisha, but he forfeits all of this for a, a dream. Just, just hoping that I can get something. Next time we see Gehazi, he's reduced to a storyteller. Just thinking about the good old days. 2 Kings chapter 8. And I can leave it there and talk about the statistics of pastors who have fallen. This is really an Old Testament story about a fall from ministry. But I want to bring it home to you and ask you, are, are, are you making God's priorities the priorities of your life? What, what are your priorities? Are you, are you deluding yourself, thinking that uh, you know, maybe my sin isn't really all that sinful? Have you reason in your heart that, you know, maybe God understands my sin. I can, I can get away with it. Are you deceiving others because of your sin? Bringing other people into it? Got a hidden agenda? Not speaking the truth when people ask an honest question? Are you discontent with what the Lord has given you? Discontent with your lot in life? You're thinking that, you know, maybe it's it's a time now for the for the kingdom. You know, maybe there's something more I'm supposed to be getting out of this ministry. Have you blown your chance to confess your sin? <laughs> God is abundant in mercy, amen. We need to make sure that our priorities are God's priorities. And when you do have that opportunity and the questions going around the table that you're willing to raise up your hand and say, hey, it's, it's me. I don't, don't have to ask, is it I? No, it's, it's me. You know, like that one old song we used to sing, it's, it's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. I need some help, right? But there's only one place to come, right? There's only one source. And praise God that God's made a solution, amen? Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for this word. Now, Father, we thank you for uh, the conviction uh, that your word brings. Now, Father, I pray that you'd help us to examine ourselves to see uh, where we are. Now, Father, that uh, you wouldn't allow us to trade in our priorities for, for yours. Now, Father, to elevate our own priorities above yours. Now, Father, I pray that we would accept your priorities. Now, Father, that we would look to the nations, Lord, even as this text is another reminder to us uh, that you were busy, even in the Old Testament, of bringing people to yourself. Help us to be satisfied when we see that. When we see souls coming to you, that we would be busy at work, bringing people to yourself. Father, opening up the way of salvation, pro proclaiming the way of the Lord. Father, let us be satisfied in the work of the ministry. Let us not be like Gehazi, who thought that there was something more, something else, something that he wasn't receiving, discontent, Unwilling to confess his sin and unwilling to receive from you the hope, the hope of confessing his sin and finding mercy. Father, there's such mercy. You are God, abundant in mercy. I pray that we would find that mercy in our lives. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen.